Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Charles Perkins Centre's annual lecture. And I'm Steve Simpson, the academic director of the Charles Perkins Centre. Before we commence, I would like to pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional owners of the land upon which the Charles Perkins Centre is built, elders past and present. This is the fourth of the Charles Perkins Centre annual lectures. It was until this year called the annual oration, but there is a Charles Perkins annual oration given each year, and it was felt that that was slightly confusing. Charles is our um, namesake and in many ways our role model, um, but it's not the same as the Charles Perkins oration. So we're now the Charles Perkins Centre annual lecture. Either way, it's the annual highlight of among three to four hundred events that we run in the centre each year, all to do with our broad mission, which is um, to ease the burden of chronic disease um, through teaching, research and discussion in the public community about the complexity of some of these major challenges. And as we have in the past three years, tonight we've got a fantastically distinguished speaker. And she's going to be addressing a fabulously complex and significant societal issue, that of ageing. So our speaker is Professor Dame Linda Partridge. Linda is a pioneer in the field of behavioural genetics and she has a particular reputation and has made uh, many of her most famous breakthroughs in the study um, of the biology and the genetic mechanisms of ageing. She's the Weldon Professor of Biometry at the Department of Genetics, Evolution and Environment at University College London, where she's also Director of the UCL Institute of Healthy Ageing, and she's one of the founding directors of the Max Planck Institute for the Biology of Ageing, um, which is in Cologne. So in recognition of her research achievements, Linda has many accolades, and I'm just going to give you some of them now. She was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society of London and was awarded the Society's extremely prestigious Croonian Lectureship. She's a Fellow of the UK Academy of Medical Sciences, a foreign honorary member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She's the recipient of the Linnaean Society of London's Darwin Wallace Medal. She was made a Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire, and she was announced by UK Resource Centre as one of six women of outstanding achievements in science, engineering and technology. Needless to say, she has also numerous honorary degrees from the universities of Bath, Oxford, Brighton, Kent and Imperial College London. So it is such a pleasure, Linda, to have you with us here this evening. Um, we're very much looking forward to your lecture. It's up here. Is there a cure for ageing? I think we all need to know. Thank you, Linda. Steve, thank you very much for the extremely kind introduction. 
I've really enjoyed the visit to the Charles Perkins Centre. I cannot tell you how impressive the work is that you're doing here. I'm convinced that the setup you have is unique in the world. It's really a remarkable achievement. And thank you very much for coming to my lecture. So, is there a cure for aging? We've certainly been very good at making ourselves live longer. It's a trend that started in the middle of the uh, 19th century in developing countries pretty well worldwide. And it's been going on at a remarkably steady rate ever since. And it's illustrated here by the work of two demographers. And what they have done is to plot life expectancy at birth. So that's the length of time that the average person is expected to live against the year in which the birth took place for the time range that we're talking about. So starting in 1840 and coming up to the present day. And each spot represents the country that at the time was the world leader. So to start with, it was the Scandinavian countries. Um, I'll come on to who it is at the moment in a minute. And what you can see is this remarkable linear trend. Two and a half years per decade increase in life expectancy. Six hours a day, if you prefer. And the reasons, the reasons for that have varied, obviously, as the trend has gone on. So initially, it was um, childhood mortality, uh, clean water improvements in food quality, um, antibiotics, immunization. At the moment, the increase is happening mainly in 70 and 80-year-olds. It's the older section of the population. And that's largely due to improved medical interventions. So it's really quite remarkable that if the trend continues, the babies who are being born today, about 25% of them are predicted to live past 100. So it, it really is a dramatic trend. And the point of this paper at the time that it was published um, was to show that the trend has shot past all these horizontal lines, which were various people's prediction of where the intrinsic limit on human lifespan was going to turn out to be. And at the moment, there's no signal in the demographic data of where that might be. We don't know how long we're capable of living uh, from these data. What's very clear is that the trend is increasing. So in all the countries for which there's good demographic data, um, the prediction is that there will be an increase by 2030. These are based on age-specific survival rates at the moment. And these are the predicted actual life expectancies in the different countries on this list. So we've got women on the left, men on the right, um, the spots, the average, these are rather fuzzy estimates, hence the green hazy bits around the spots. Um, these two axes are different for men and women. So generally in all these countries, men live less long than women, although they're catching up quite rapidly. But it's not all good news for women, because they actually have a longer period of ill health and lack of function at the end of life. The morbid period at the end of life is more extended in women than men at the moment. And you can see that the predicted world leader for both sexes is uh, South Korea. But actually, Australia is doing pretty well, particularly for men. So they're right behind South Korea here, that not quite so well for women. So very healthy uh, lifestyle in Australia. And of course, this increase in the average is being accompanied by some quite remarkable outliers. Um, these are two, I think, very interesting ones. Um, the lady on the left is Jeanne-Louise Calmont, and as far as we know, she's the world record holder for uh, longevity. She was born in France, and she died in August 1997 at the age of 122 and some months. 
And it's interesting to speculate what her secret was. Um, she came from quite a long-lived family, and human lifespan's about 25% heritable, so it may have had something to do with that. But on the other hand, she was definitely not a very good advertisement for a healthy lifestyle. She actually gave up smoking when she was 119. <laughs> so. so who knows what her secret was? And the oldest living person at the moment is the Japanese lady on the right, uh, Nabi Tajima. She's um, just over 117. I suppose the most remarkable thing about her is, is her family. She had nine children and she has 160 living descendants. So a very fecund lady. And there's been a lot of speculation about these outliers. I mean, Jean-Louis Camon died over 20 years ago now. And there's some, been some discussion of whether that means we really are seeing the limit on human lifespan. But I think they're so rare, these outliers, and of course we don't know how long Nabi Tajima will live, that at the moment we still don't know, I think, what the limit's going to be. So I personally think this is something to be celebrated. We've improved our living conditions. People are staying healthier as they age, and so they're living longer. But paradoxically, it's coming with the obvious major downside, which is that aging is the major risk factor for all kinds of loss of function and inconvenience during aging, but also for the major, chron major chronic and killer diseases. So these are actually um, British or EU statistics, but they're pretty similar in different countries. Um, for dementia, cardiovascular disease, and cancer um, by sex. So the um, red is women, uh, blue is men. And you can see this very, very strong age-related uh, tendency for all three diseases. And the kind of research that I and a lot of other people are doing on biology of aging is basically aimed at tackling these diseases. What we're trying to do is to compress that morbid period at the end of life. So we want to make discoveries that will enable people to stay healthier for longer until they die. The idea is not necessarily to extend lifespan. That's happening without the intervention of people like me. The issue is health during aging. The major burden of ill health is now falling on older people. And I think throughout our history, we've always felt that there's a moral imperative to try and deal with ill health. And it's old people mainly who are ill these days. So I think that's the ethical outlook behind this kind of research. So I think the answer to should there be a cure for aging is yes, there should. And one of the uh, ways that we know that this may be possible and that perhaps we could intervene into the underlying aging process to prevent these diseases simultaneously, since the aging is the common risk factor for all of them, comes from evidence from animals in nature. We know that there are extraordinary lifespans out there and that they're genetically encoded. And these are just some of the, um, I think, quite remarkable biological examples. So as far as I know, the longest-lived mammal is this creature, the bowhead whale, which is capable of living for up to 200 years. It's actually been aged um, by the age of the harpoon heads that are sometimes found embedded in the animals. That's how they realize that they were living so long. So extraordinary lifespan here. This Greenland shark was discovered only very recently, um, about three years ago, to be capable of living to almost 400 years. It doesn't even start breeding until it's 150. <laughs> so it wouldn't make a great fishery. And then there are various interesting uh, ones on the row below, basically making the point that it's easy to um, fall into the trap of thinking that the bowhead well is long-lived because it's big 
because it has a large body size. But actually, these are two quite independent traits. Aging can, a slow rate of aging can evolve in small organisms. So I think this is the animal record holder, the ocean quahog, 507 years, absolutely amazing. Um, this naked mole rat's very interesting. It's a rodent. It's intermediate in size between a mouse and a rat. Um, but it can live 30 years, and they can only live three. And it's actually been brought into the lab, and quite a bit of work has been done on its biology. And one of the remarkable things about it is that it seems not to get cancer. They seem to be quite free of that disease. So there's a lot of work going on understanding why that is. And this, I think, is a remarkable example of this little bat. He only weighs eight grams. You can see he's sitting on the tip of someone's finger. can live 40 years in nature. And it's not a hibernating bat. It's not a, a low-energy expenditure story. It keeps active all the time. So the rate of aging can evolve to be very slow and independent of body size. And in fact, it's not inevitable at all. There seem to be some organisms that just don't age. And these are two of them, um, sea anemone on the left, the little freshwater hydra on the right. And people have looked at these in the wild, they've looked at their age structure, and as far as anyone can see, they're no more likely to die and no less able to reproduce as they go through their life. They just flatline. So it's possible not to age at all. These creatures are interesting. They seem to be bags of stem cells. They can regenerate themselves quite remarkably if there's some sort of injury, and that's probably got something to do uh, with the fact that they don't age. So there's this extraordinary genetic variation out there in the natural world because we know that these differences between species are genetically encoded. And what we'd like to do is to somehow find what their tricks are and to use what we've learned uh, to try and help humans during aging. And in humans, there are indeed some interesting aging syndromes, but they're rather tragic ones because what they seem to do is to speed up the process. And these are the progerias, the uh, premature aging syndromes. Um, so two of them are illustrated here. We've got Hutchinson-Guilford progeria on the left. So these children, um, mercifully, both of these syndromes are extremely rare. Um, but with Hutchinson-Guilford, the children are born normal and seem to develop normally. But starting at about 18 months or two years, they start to show the symptoms of normal aging. So they start to lose their hair, they lose their subcutaneous fat, um, they start to get problems with their joints. And they usually die in their teens of various uh, complications, cardiovascular disease and atherosclerosis. So it's a very extreme syndrome. And it does look remarkably like accelerated aging. Um, the one on the right is Werner's syndrome, which is quite a bit milder. So it usually uh, starts to uh, show symptoms in teenagers, and they usually die in their 30s or 40s from either cancer or cardiovascular disease, again, showing many of the symptoms of aging as they go through their life. And interestingly, both of these uh, syndromes actually involve problems with the handling of the genetic material, uh, which provides quite a strong hint that perhaps um, changes to DNA, to, to the way that it's packed in the nucleus of the cell, to the way that it's modified, may play an important role in aging. But of course, what we would really like to do is to slow down the process, not to speed it up. But these syndromes, I think, give us a hint that perhaps we could do the opposite if we could somehow intervene and increase the fidelity with which the genetic material is handled during aging. Perhaps we could slow down its symptoms and prevent disease. 
And for that kind of approach, a rather different group of animals from the ones I've been talking about have been really key to the discoveries. And these are the laboratory model organisms. They're, if you like, the uh, workhorses of modern biology. So typically, if we're trying to understand a process like um, transmission of genetic information between generations, uh, metabolism, the way the nervous system works, then what we do is to study one of the simpler organisms, so uh, the yeast, the nematode worm, or the fruit fly, and we figure out how the process works there in a relatively simple situation. And then armed with that knowledge, we can go and look at the much more complicated and also sometimes ethically challenging situation in the mouse. And the reason that works is because of the staggering evolutionary conservation of biological mechanisms. So we can often take a gene from one of these animals or even from a human and put it into one of the other species and it works just fine in the new context. There really is very strong evolutionary conservation. But I think for quite some time, people thought this might not be true of aging. Why should these very different kinds of organisms encounter the same kinds of stresses and damage and difficulty as they go through their lives? And of course, these organisms have very different lifespans from each other. So for instance, the worm can live for about three weeks, the fly for about three months, the mouse, as I've already said, for about three years. So they have very different rates of aging from each other. So I think for quite some time, people almost thought themselves out of investigating aging in these organisms. But eventually, somebody took the plunge and did a very interesting and really quite simple experiment. Um, so what she did was to take this nematode worm to feed it a chemical mutagen that would induce alterations in the genetic material. And she asked if she could recover mutant strains that were long-lived. And she found that she could. So this was Cynthia Kenyon, then working at the University of California at San Francisco. And you can see one of her long-lived mutants here. So this is a survival curve. So this is the proportion of the animals left alive after uh, different numbers of days. These are the controls here. And you can see this, this mutant, which is called DAF2, I'll tell you what that means in a minute, is quite extraordinarily long-lived relative to the controls. So this was really the first clear example of a mutation causing extended lifespan. And very importantly, these long-lived worms were wriggling around and healthy long after the controls were dead. So it wasn't just an extension of the moribund period at the end of life. She'd actually extended the healthy lifespan. And it took a while to figure it out, but it eventually turned out that what DAF2 was, was a gene that encodes a receptor that sits on the surface of cells, and it's the insulin, insulin-like growth factor receptor. So these pathways were already much better known in mammals. Insulin, because of its role in the control of blood glucose and metabolism more broadly. IGF-1, because of its control of growth, wound healing, tissue remodeling, and so on. And here now, this pathway turns up in the worm. Its existence there was not previously suspected. And when its activity is tamped down, because this mutation reduces the activity of the pathway, then we get a long-lived worm. And what this pathway does, basically, is to figure out the current status of the animal. It figures out the nutrient status, the stress status, the infection status, integrates the information, and decides whether the organism can afford to do expensive activities like growth, reproduction, metabolic activity, and so on. And it turns out that the activity of the pathway is tamped down up too high in a normal worm as it gets old, 
and if we reduce it, then we can extend lifespan. And interestingly, not only did this mutant extend the lifespan of ordinary worms, it proved to be capable of combating the pathology associated with genetic models of specific aging-related diseases. This is just one example. So this worm here has basically been given a form of Alzheimer's disease. And you can see that it's in really poor shape. Its rear end isn't moving at all. It's just rather feebly twitching at the front end. And what's been done here is that one of the toxic proteins associated with the brain in Alzheimer's disease, it's called A-beta, has been expressed in the muscles of this worm and given it a sort of paralysis. And what these investigators did, again, it was Cynthia Kenyon's lab, um, was to combine this Alzheimer's mutation with the DAF2 mutation. And what they found when they did that was that they could completely restore the muscle function of the worm. It was really quite a dramatic finding. And then there are a number of other disease models in worms which are also combated by the DAF2 mutation. So a very interesting mutation, but in worms. And what I think surprised everybody subsequently almost as much was that this role of the insulin IGF network in aging turned out to be evolutionarily conserved. So here we have survival curves for a different experiment with DAF2 on the left, um, but the same finding, the huge extension of lifespan. And then we see in the fly in the middle and the mouse on the right a slightly different mutation that affects the same network. And you can see the nice extension of lifespan in both species. So this network activity is, is too high in all of these organisms as they age. One of the interesting things about the fly and the mouse is that the mutations particularly extend lifespan in females. And we don't know why that is. But again, they conferred an improvement in health during aging. It wasn't just an extension of the moribund period. So for instance, in the long-lived mutant mice, um, they had better glucose homeostasis. You might actually expect one of these mutations to induce diabetes, but it did the opposite. Their glucose handling was better as they got older. They had better immune function, uh, better motor function. They retained their agility better as they got older. Uh, less osteoporosis. Uh, you can see the cataract here on the uh, control mouse, and also this ulcerative dermatitis on the head and the nape of the animal. So the, about 40% of the controls get that skin condition at some point during aging. But we've never seen a case in the mutant mice. They're completely free of it. So what I think is remarkable about this is you've got a mutation in a single gene, but it's producing this very broad spectrum improvement in health during aging, involving different systems and different kinds of functions. And again, in the mice, just as in the worms, the mutations com could combat specific aging-related disease models. So again, this is an Alzheimer's example. And this is the uh, Morris, Morris water maze, which is used to test the ability of mice to form a memory of the spatial arrangement of their environment. So the way it works is you can just see the shadow at the back of the maze here. That's a platform which is just below the surface of the cloudy water here in this drum. And Initially, the animals are trained with a flag attached to the platform. So they're put into the water in the drum, they swim because they don't much like being in water. Eventually, they find the platform and they learn that it's associated with the flag. So during the training, they swim straight to it because the flag's there. And then the flag's removed and the mouse has to now find the platform by association with these cues outside the drum, which have been there all along during the training session. So the question is, can it remember 
the location of the platform relative to these visual cues. And if you do that with one of a similar Alzheimer's disease model in the mouse, this time involving impaired function of the neurons in the brain, what happens when you ask the animal whether it can remember where the platform is, is that it swims around more or less at random and takes ages to find it. But again, if you combine that with a long-lived mutant, the animals can find their search around the platform and find it pretty quickly. I mean, this is obviously an anecdote. I'm just showing you two animals, but there are systematic measurements on this. You can see the um, combined animals already found the platform. And in fact, the long-lived mutant really um, protects against a number of aspects of Alzheimer's disease, so the memory impairment. Um, as the animals get older and progress more in the disease, they become um, impaired in their motor coordination. It rescues that. These pictures here basically show brain inflammation, so this astrocytosis and also loss of neurons, the actual death of the nerve cells in the brain. And again, the mutant reverses that. And this doesn't only apply to models of neurodegeneration. These mutants can also combat cancer and aspects of cardiovascular disease. So they really do seem to be preventative against aging-related disease. Of course, where we hope all of this is leading is to helping people. And so there's been a great deal of interest in figuring out uh, whether this insulin IGF nutrient sensing network is important in human aging. And here, mainly, um, we've people have exploited the knowledge that lifespan is about 25% heritable in humans, so there's some genetic basis to it, and also the information from the animal models to go and look at long-lived families or long-lived individuals to see if indeed they show lower activity of the signaling network. And these are just some of the papers that have come out on this. It's actually really starting to look quite promising. Um, so up here we've got um, insulin IGF coming up, um, TOR is an intracellular bit of the nutrient sensing network, particularly interested in uh, sensing protein. Um, it turns out to be important. This FOXO3A is very interesting. This is something called a transcription factor. And what happens when insulin IGF signaling is tamped down is that this FOXO becomes active and it goes into the nucleus of the cell and it turns on and off the activity of the genes that eventually lead to the improvement in health during aging. And it turns out that the mutants in this human FOXO gene are associated with exceptional longevity, so above 90 and above 100. So it is looking as though similar things may be going on in humans. And of course, what we would like to do is to develop or to discover drugs that confer the advantage that these healthy, long-lived people have on the whole of the population who don't have their genetic advantage. So there's a great interest in drug development in this area for drugs that might prevent aging-related disease. But I think if we're considering actually developing new drugs, the challenges are very great. So if we want to increase human health span, the first thing is that we're probably talking about some sort of long-term drug treatment. We don't know when we'd have to start, um, but certainly probably in middle age. Now, of course, the principle of that is established for specific diseases. People often take for decades drugs to lower their uh, blood lipids, their blood pressure. Um, quite a lot of people have long-term use of aspirin, uh, which is protective against many types of cancer. So the principle there of preventative uh, drug taking is there, but it might be quite a, a major challenge for aging. 
such a drug, of course, has to be uh, very safe. And it also has to satisfy the regulators. And until very recently, aging has not been recognized as a disease. Drugs can only be developed against specific diseases. As I'll show in a minute, that, that's something that's starting to change. But it has been a big problem. And also, of course, the pharmaceutical industry, who are going to do the drug trials and the drug development, have to be able to make money out of it. And if you're trying to do a clinical trial where you're looking over a very long period with a drug that you're going to give to a wide section of the population that are currently healthy, that's going to be an extremely expensive trial. Of course, that doesn't stop various people marketing things that they say will combat aging. If you go into any drugstore, you'll find plenty of stuff on the shelf that is purportedly going to uh, fix the aging process. Um, but what we're trying to do is a somewhat more evidence-based approach. And some of the drugs are really starting um, to look quite promising. So this is a cartoon of this nutrient uh, sensing network that I've been talking about. Um, so what we have here is a cell. This is the surface of the cell. This is this insulin IGF receptor that I've been talking about. It sits in the, in the membrane in the surface of the cell and responds to ligands, either insulin or IGF, that are circulating in the blood supply. And there's then this um, signaling cascade of proteins that chat to each other when the receptor is stimulated. There are two pathways that come down here. And then eventually they talk to these transcription factors that I've already mentioned, which are in the nucleus of the cell and that turn on and off the activity of genes. That's how the whole thing works. So here's FOXO, which we've already mentioned as responding to the insulin IGF receptor in the DAF2 mutant. And the interesting thing, or an interesting thing, about this network is that it's already been hammered by the pharmaceutical industry in the context of aging-related disease because mutations in many of these genes are very strongly associated with specific aging-related conditions. So, for instance, um, in human cancers, about a third of them have got a mutation somewhere in the RAS pathway. Um, this one is very, the pathway on the right is very important in uh, metabolic disease, diabetes, um, and also cardiovascular disease. And there's some indication, for instance, for GSK3, also for neurodegeneration. So the drug companies have been very interested in this network already. And of course, that's just what you'd expect if it's involved as a pro-aging pathway that actually causes aging-related disease. These associations are entirely um, expected. But what that means is that there are existing drugs that may well have a much broader therapeutic range than anybody realizes at the moment. We may be able to repurpose drugs that are already licensed and for which there's already a clear safety profile rather than developing them from scratch. And I think that's very much the direction that the field is taking at the moment. So one such interesting drug is called rapamycin. And what it does is to inhibit this, the activity of this thing in the middle um, called mTORC1, which is this tall pathway that's particularly um, important in the sensing of proteins. So it's a, a licensed drug. And its on-license uses are to prevent rejection of tissue transplants, so particularly kidney transplants. It's given as an immunosuppressant. Um, it prevents restenosis. It keeps the heart arteries uh, clear after cardiac surgery. And it's also used as a uh, chemotherapeutic in the context of certain cancers. But interestingly, it turns out to increase lifespan. Um, so this is an example from a fly. Um, 
where you can see the dosing regime here and the dose-dependent increase in lifespan, rather a mild effect, but a very consistent one. The drug was actually discovered on Easter Island, Rapa Nui, hence its name, rapamycin. Um, it was discovered as a product of one of the uh, microbes in the soil and inhibited the uh, growth and division of mammalian cells and tissue culture. That was how it first uh, came to attention. And very importantly, it's really the first firmly established drug that in can increase lifespan in mice. I think this is the most recent um, set of data on this. So we've got males at the top, females at the bottom, and the um, dose of rapamycin uh, that they were given throughout life. And you can see this nice dose-dependent increase in lifespan. Again, a greater increase in females than in males. And it's going to be really important to try to uh, figure out why that is. So rapamycin genuinely seems to be an anti-aging drug. And as with the mutants, these animals show broad spectrum improvement in health. And because the pathway is so conserved, we can use the fly and the worm to understand exactly what the molecular mechanisms are by which it's having this effect. But it's turning out to be a rapidly repurposing drug. So preclinical work with the animal models has shown that as well as extending lifespan, it can um, reduce the effect of Alzheimer's disease models. And it's not just Alzheimer's disease. It's um, been effective in models of Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, motor neuron disease. It really does seem to be very protective against neurodegeneration. And that's led to some you know, real discussion about repurposing it. But I think its most recent claim to fame is an interesting one, um, which is in the context of immunization and the poor response of older people to many types of immunization. So one classic example here is flu. Young people respond very much better to immunization against flu than old people do. And actually the same thing is true in mice, where the effect of rapamycin um, on this was first discovered. So what we've got here on the right is the survival of groups of mice, either young or old, that were immunized against flu and then infected with the flu virus. And what you find here is that in the young mice, if they've been immunized, there's no death in response to the experimental infection. Whereas if they haven't been immunized, they die um, pretty much 100%. And old mice that have been immunized do almost as badly as young mice that haven't been immunized. But what these people found was that if they treated the mice with rapamycin for, I think, four weeks and then let them clear the drug and then immunize them, they survive just as well as young mice that have been immunized. So it has a tremendously potentiating effect for the immunization. And the mechanistic work that they did subsequently, um, which these blobs down here on the left represent, showed that what the drug was doing was actually rejuvenating stem cells in the bone marrow that give rise to the white cells that respond to the immunization against flu. And very recently, the Novartis drug company have done a similar experiment in humans, of course, without the experimental infection with the virus. But they've looked at the immune response of older people to flu vaccination, whether they have or haven't been pre-treated with rapamycin. And it gave quite dramatically positive results. The immune response was greatly potentiated in the people who'd been pre-treated with rapamycin. So it seems to have this rejuvenating effect on stem cells. So I think at the moment it's the, the leading drug in this context of repurposing 
to prevent ageing-related disease. I think it won't be rapamycin itself, although it's being used at much lower doses than the therapeutic dose in these studies. It does have some mild side effects, particularly mouth ulcers actually is one of them. And I think it's going to be possible to use um, derived drugs from rapamycin and slightly different drugs that inhibit TOR to achieve the same effect without, without the side effects. So there's little way to go yet. Uh, but I think in general the message is a promising one, um, that there may be ways forward there. Another one, very surprisingly, that's starting to look rather interesting is lithium. Um, so lithium is again a licensed drug that's used to treat bipolar disorder. And it turns out to extend lifespan in worms and also in flies. Um, so the survival curves are shown here. It's rather a, a dangerous drug, so the difference between the therapeutic dose and a toxic dose in humans is quite small. And the same is true of lifespan. So these are the controls in black, and you can see the dose-dependent increase at the lower doses here, but then quite rapid toxicity um, if it's given in too high dose. Um, I think, again, we probably wouldn't be talking about lithium itself. Um, what it does is to inhibit that uh, molecule that I mentioned in the network, GSK3, which is associated uh, with neurodegenerative disease. And because of that association, again, the drug companies have developed many other safer drugs than lithium that will have the same effect. So I think they need to be looked at. Um, but just interestingly, there are some epidemiological data from humans uh, which are shown on the right here. So these are actually Japanese uh, living in different uh, prefectures in a specific region of Japan where there's quite a bit of variation in the amount of lithium in the tap water. And what these people have done is to simply look at um, all-cause mortality, excluding suicide because of the association with bipolar, um, against the concentration in the drinking water. And you can see there's this really quite strong association. The more lithium there is in the drinking water, the lower the all-cause mortality at specific ages in that prefecture. So for this reason, there's quite a bit of work going on with lithium now, looking at whether um, it extends lifespan in mice and also looking at other equivalent drugs that inhibit GSK3. And I think the other major breakthrough with drugs that's come in the field is actually in, in policy uh, rather than discovery. And this is that the FDA, the Clinical Trial Licensing Authority in the United States, have finally agreed to do a clinical trial with aging as the indication. And this is actually being done with a drug called metformin. Um, so metformin's been around for a long time. It's a fantastically safe drug. It has a really good safety trial uh, profile. And it's the first line of defense against type 2 diabetes. It's, it's used almost universally for that now. And it, again, activates one of the molecules that's involved in this nutrient sensing network, it probably actually has more than one action, um, but it certainly does that. And it might therefore be expected to have anti-aging um, action. And there's some indication from animal studies uh, that it does so. But the important thing here is that this uh, clinical trial has been licensed and the condition that they've come up with is aging itself. So they're looking at several different aging-related conditions that might crop up starting with healthy subjects and looking what happens to them as they go through um, a metformin treatment. So I think the outcome of this will be really important in terms of establishing this type of clinical trial. So that's where I think the prospects 
uh, standing at the moment for drug development in the area. But obviously, you know, we're not quite there yet. So what can we do of a non-drug nature that might improve health during ageing? And here I think we have to think a bit about why it is that tamping down the activity of this nutrient sensing network can have these major health benefits. If this confers such health, why isn't the network set to this level of activity in the first place? Why is it at these damaging levels in later life? And I think here we have to think about our own evolutionary past and also the evolutionary past of these laboratory model organisms that we're using to do these experiments on aging. Because, of course, we're all living way past the ages that we would have done up until about 200 years ago as humans. And so also are the laboratory animals. They're in a completely protected environment. Natural hazards are removed. And so they're all living much longer than their natural lifespan would be in nature. And what that means is that for all of us, the laboratory model organisms and us, natural selection hasn't had a chance to act on the later part of life. Everything about us has been evolved through natural selection on what happens at younger ages, the reproductive ages, the growth ages, the earlier phases of life. And what's turning out is that now that we're living to these very advanced ages that haven't been sorted out by natural selection, it turns out that youthful levels of this, of this network are too high and they're causing ill health. And, of course, the other thing is that we're living in a completely different environment from our evolutionary past, and so are these animals. So we're living in a totally safe situation where we have abundant, in fact, too abundant food supply of very good quality food, very little exercise compared with the evolutionary past when we would have had to go out and forage for the food. So we're living in a completely artificial environment. And I think a lot of what we're seeing is that if we simply reverse some of these altered environmental influences, which don't fit with our evolutionary past, then we can make ourselves healthier. If we can put ourselves in a situation that's more like the one in which we evolved, then it helps us during aging. So it's very clear that exercise is one of the interventions that is extremely beneficial for health in the elderly. There have been a lot of um, control trials now doing various uh, different exercise regime on peoples of different ages. And for instance, markers of risk for cardiovascular disease, sleep, metabolic profile, they all improve as a result of increased exercise. So that's one intervention that not all of us want to do, but there's no doubt of the health benefits if we do it. I think the one that we understand much better in terms of mechanism is alterations to diet. Because what this nutrient sensing network that I've been talking about does, amongst other things, is to mediate the effects of an intervention that's been known about for much longer, uh, which is dietary restriction. So it was discovered way back in the 1930s in rats that if you simply put the animal on a diet, so you just supply it with an amount of food that's less than it would eat if it could choose for itself, so you give it 80, 60, even 50% of what it would choose to eat, then you get a big extension of lifespan and a very broad spectrum improvement in health. And the same in mice. And since then, it's turned out that in all these model and non-model organisms, some sort of um, food restriction has the same effect. We see an increase in lifespan and an improvement in health. 
And recently, there have been two long-term experiments in the United States that show that this is true in rhesus monkeys, much more closely related to us, of course, than the rodents. This is actually a rather interesting case, just in, in terms of um, how people do science, of two groups that were asking the same scientific question. They wanted to know if dietary restriction would extend lifespan and improve health in rhesus monkeys. And they actually set about it in very, very different ways, um, which is probably why they got slightly different results. So one group saw an extension of lifespan, the other didn't. We can discuss why the difference afterwards if you like. But what they both show very clearly was massive and very broad spectrum health improvements. So the papers on these studies are still coming out. These are just the points that have come out so far. But there were improvements in, in function, so physical activity was maintained much better as they got older. Um, increased uh, vascular density in the heart and the brain, um, which maintains the health of both organs during aging. Um, skeletal muscle mass, immune function, decreased um, iron accumulation in the brain, which is associated with neurodegenerative disease. And then less impact of the major um, aging-related diseases. So it really does seem to be effective in a primate. Of course, we would like to know in humans, and there have been um, various attempts at uh, randomized um, clinical trials of the effects of dietary restriction in humans. And at the moment, I think we can say confidently there are no definite conclusions because people just cannot comply with the regime. <laughs> It's, it's almost impossible to get subjects. So the one study that's had a reasonable number of volunteers eventually, although far fewer than the thousands who volunteered, they ended up, I think, with 192 people. They could only do a reduction of 10% compared with voluntary intake. And they did see an improvement in risk markers for cardiovascular disease, but it was really very mild. Interestingly, some very self-disciplined individuals do do dietary uh, restriction, and they're quite intensively studied. And it's very clear that at least for cardiovascular disease, that they're showing a very improved profile. And there's one interesting cultural case of dietary restriction, um, which was much studied uh, basically last century, which is the Okinawan Japanese. Um, so it's not true anymore. They've gone over, sadly for them, to a Western diet. Um, but even compared with mainland Japan, which has very good uh, life expectancy, Okinawa, which is an island down in the south of the archipelago here, um, has very high life expectancy. Um, so still, I think, the highest fraction of centenarians in the world. And they voluntarily eat less than even most other Japanese. So they have this dietary restriction culture. This phrase at the bottom means stop eating before you're full. So they eat the adults and the children eat quite a bit less um, than the recommended uh, calories. And there was a very intensive study of them at the time when they were still doing this in the last century compared with same-aged Americans. And again, they showed this very, very strong reduction in the various age-related conditions. So that's interesting, but not particularly helpful since most people can't do it. So is there a way that uh, we can intervene with diet that might capture some of the effects of dietary restriction without actually having to eat a lot less? And I think a lot of the work on this has actually been done here in Sydney, particularly by Steve Simpson's group and many others in the Charles Perkins Centre. It's very clear that the composition of the diet is extremely important. 
even for the same calorie intake. So we know that dietary restriction isn't calorie restriction. It's not just a reduction in the total energy that you take in. It matters how you take those calories out of the diet. It's really important. And actually, it's a slightly complicated story because the different nutrients interact with each other. So this is a slightly oversimplified account of what is a very important point, uh, which is the key role of protein in the diet. So this is a summary diagram of what's come out of the studies with mice and with humans on this. And the wrinkle is that the effects of protein in the diet seem to be a little bit age-specific. Um, but what's clear is that in the main part of life, so up to 65 in humans and in adults in the main part of life in the mice, that high protein in the diet is dangerous. It's basically carcinogenic, it increases the um, incidence of tumours in both humans and mice um, to the extent that they show an increased mortality. And there may other, be other consequences. Certainly cancer is part of the problem. There may well be other metabolic problems associated with high protein intake. As both animals get older, this somewhat tips over um, to having to consider the other aspect of aging, which is, of course, frailty. So as people, particularly women, get older, they suffer a loss of muscle mass, sarcopenia. And this greatly increases the uh, probability of falls and, and also reduces the general level of exercise, which is, of course, very unhealthy. And uh, some of the evidence in both mice and humans says that after a certain point, actually the amount of protein should be in the diet should be increased because frailty is becoming more important than other considerations. But the basic point here is that it matters what you eat as well as how much you eat. And adjustments to diet, I think, are going to be very much part of the public health advice about ageing in the years to come, much of it emanating from here. The other thing that interests me a lot that's come up recently about food, um, mainly in the context at the moment of metabolism and obesity rather than ageing, because people haven't done the experiments yet, is that it may matter when you eat as well as what you eat. So the timing of food intake may be important. And this has been studied particularly in mice by the um, group of Dr. Panda, who's mentioned here in the author list. And what he has done is to compare animals that can eat as much as they like through the 24-hour period with animals that eat the same amount, but in a restricted time, so they're only supplied with food for a limited part of the day. So what that means is that you've got animals that can eat continuously, can snack whenever they like, versus ones that are eating the same amount, but only in a restricted part of the day. So, of course, by the same token, that means they have a long fasting period in the 24-hour period before they next feed. And it turns out that that difference, despite the same food intake in the two groups, has a dramatic effect on their metabolic health. Um, so this is shown here. This was the summary cartoon of the paper. So we had two types of mice, genetically obese ones, um, which have got a problem uh, with their leptin signaling from fat, which is why they get obese, they're hyperphagic, and just ordinary uh, lean mice. And what he's done with both groups of mice in these two um, lines at the top here is to compare either ad libitum feeding or this time-restricted feeding where the mice had the food available only for six hours out of 24. And what happened was that the obese mice fed ad lib became morbidly obese and very unhealthy, whereas the time-restricted ones were still rather fat 
but showed a much better metabolic profile. Um, with the lean mice, basically the same thing happened. They became obese if they could feed ad libitum. I should have said this was a high-fat diet that they were being exposed to. Whereas if they're time-restricted, then again, they're lean and fit. And I can't think how they decided to come up with this experiment, but they decided to have a third group of mice where they could have the weekend off. So they, <laughs> so they were time-restricted during the five days of the week, but at the weekend they could eat what they liked. And again, there was a good metabolic outcome. So I think it's going to be really interesting with experiments like this. First of all, to figure out whether it matters when that time restriction is. Is it better to eat breakfast or dinner? I think we really don't know at the moment. The experiments um, haven't been done. And also we need to look at the long-term effects of these kinds of feeding regime, whether as well as affecting the obesity and metabolic profile of young mice, there are effects on what happens during aging. And I think the strongest hints that we've got about uh, lifestyle and uh, ways of living a long, healthy life really come from these blue zones. There's a, a book being written about them. They're regions in the world where you see exceptional longevity. So high rates of centenarians, very little aging-related disease, basically a healthy life, and then a relatively sudden death, which is, I think, probably what we'd all want. Um, so I've mentioned already Okinawa um, here. There's a, a sub-area of Costa Rica, um, Loma Linda, California. This is actually Seventh-day Adventists uh, living there. There's a region in, um, in Sardinia in Italy. It's not the whole of Sardinia. It's just part of it. And Icaria in Greece, uh, where you see these uh, long, healthy lives and very reduced morbidity before death. And these are what they have in common with each other. Of course, we need to do experiments to find out what's causal as opposed to correlation. But again, regular physical activity... Um, generally a low-stress kind of life, um, moderate calorie intake we've already seen. I think this plant-based diet requires a lot more experimentation, but it is a correlate of what's going on. And uh, moderate alcohol intake, you'll be glad to hear, especially of wine. So I think that that's what we know about healthy lifestyle during aging at the moment. But I think the way the field is trending is the one I've been saying, which is the idea that you intervene in the underlying aging process itself and thereby combat many of the things that can go wrong during the aging process, as contrasted with waiting for people to get sick and then trying to fix each disease piecemeal. It's a really rather different way of looking at health during aging. And there's a lot of um, other kinds of work going on on this, and particularly health economics, um, where it's very clear that with this huge burden of ill health in the elderly, actually treating ageing, especially with drugs that are already licensed, is going to pay economic dividends for society, as well as improving the quality of life of older people. So, to summarise, surprisingly, aging's turned out to be a really malleable process, and even simple mutations in genes can improve health during ageing. These nutrient-sensing networks are the best-established cause of aging and the one in which we can most effectively intervene at the moment. We can slow the effects of aging by diet, mutations or drugs, and that way the animals don't get sick. And I hope that what we're looking forward to is a broad-spectrum preventative medicine for the diseases of aging. And thank you very much for your attention. Well, thank you, Linda. That was absolutely wonderful.
Thank you so much. Now, we have some time for questions, and then just to forewarn you, we're, we're going to rename the Blue Zone, which is just outside, where there'll be a bit of a reception afterwards. You can mingle, I think, maybe even have a glass of wine, which will be protective of your um, health, mental health and longevity, at least a couple. So um, we have some people with roving microphones, and we'll take some questions. So we start up. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. Very excellent. I just you made a passing reference to fluid restriction. Uh, I just wondered if you could expand on that. Fluid restriction. Fluid, fluid restriction. Fluid. Yes. Ah, um, there's that's a very interesting one. Um, there's a lot of evidence that actually drinking, I mean, not ridiculous amounts, but drinking more rather than less water-based liquids during the day is particularly protective for the kidneys. So the in instance of kidney cancer, for instance, is much lower in people who drink a lot. So yes, th there's definitely a whole interesting axis there. Drinking too little water is bad for you. And also, high salt in the diet. Big risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Thank you very much. Professor Partridge, what do you think the role of t t telomeres is and tel telomerase in the in Asian process? Again, that's, that's a really interesting one. So there's a lot of evidence that shortened telomeres can be associated with increased risk of ageing-related disease and death. So it's, of course, very interesting to um, wonder why that is. So the telomeres are the, the ends of the chromosomes. So the genetic material is um, packed into these little cigar-shaped things in the nucleus of the cell, and the ends of them are called telomeres. And during cell division, they shorten. They can't be completely replicated at the end. So as cells divide, they get shorter and shorter and shorter. And eventually, if they start eating into the chromosome, there's a whole crisis response in the cell, and it goes into a state called senescence. And as I say, there's been quite a bit of evidence from humans looking, of course, usually at blood, because that's the most accessible tissue in a human, that the telomeres in the white cells shorten. They certainly shorten uh, during aging, and they're associated with risk. It, it's one of these epidemiological things that's <laughs> it's very complicated to unravel. My own opinion about it is that what you're looking at is actually a history of infection, because the, but what it means if the telomeres are short in the white cells is that the stem cells and the bone marrow have divided more often. And the most obvious reason they're going to do that is because they've had to fight an infection. And there's quite a strong correlation uh, with both socioeconomic status and stressful occupations of a kind that are likely to be associated with higher rates of infection. So, for instance, the nursing profession. So I, I think it may be an indicator of past history of infection, and that goes with other things that may be the ones that are actually key to causing the problems during aging. I, I'm not, it's not clear it's causal. It's associated, but it's probably because it's acting as a flag for other factors that are problematic. Um, one of the drugs you mentioned uh, has the name rapamycin. Uh, the suffix uh, implies that it's an antibiotic or a strain of penicillin. Is that an assumed implication correct? 
Um, it doesn't have antibiotic properties. It, okay, thank you. It, it's a very clear uh, inhibitor of um, TORC1, so the TOR, the TOR protein is associated with two different complexes in the cell, and rapamycin very specifically goes for one of them. And it's almost insert, certainly involved in the wars that go on between the different microorganisms living in the soil. So they spit the stuff out to try and prevent the guy next door from growing and dividing. That's probably why it evolved. Um, but it turns out to be remarkably specific and to work in humans. It, it's very evolutionarily conserved in its effect. Okay, thank you. Hi, I'm interested in the subject. Uh, obviously, I'm a bit older myself, but also I'm a, an investor. And I get a, a bit of information from overseas, and I believe... Um, Ajax, through, Ajax Therapeutics in America are um, studying stem cells. Um, they've uh, done some studies on salamanders who are able to uh, regrow, same with uh, uh, lizards, their tails, their heads, whatever, okay? There's a belief that um, embryonic stem cells uh, have the same ability. The, the belief is that uh, uh, babies can, up until eight weeks, regrow a cut-off arm or whatever, okay? Apparently these are studies. I'm only telling you the information I get. Um, and so at the recent uh, World uh, Stem Cells uh, uh, Summit, um, Michael West uh, presented uh, some studies to say that they have identified a stem cell called COX-741, I think it is. Um, and it's the... This... Um, uh, gene uh, in the genome that uh, switches on and off at eight weeks' time, um, they've have found a way of turning it back on. Do you oh. know anything about that? No. <laughs> it's, an interesting, it's an interesting study, uh, and the, uh, the results were presented only about three weeks ago at the World Stem Cell. Uh, wow. Study. Yeah. Well, there's certainly some very interesting work going on with rejuvenation of stem cells at the moment in a slightly different way from that, although it, it made an echo in my mind. Um, so there's been work going on at Stanford, initially slightly Frankenstein experiments, where they linked the blood supply of two different mice, so essentially sewed them together with conjoined blood supply. And what they showed was that they could join a young mouse to a young mouse or an old mouse to an old mouse or a young mouse to an old mouse. And what they found was that the stem cells in the muscle, the satellite cells, which normally become unresponsive to muscle injury as the animal gets older, were actually rejuvenated in the older animals by the association with the young blood supply. These days they're doing those experiments with plasma injection, not with conjoined animals. But it turns out that that finding applies to stem cells in the brain as well and in other organs in the body. So there's something either rejuvenating in the young blood supply or unrejuvenating in the old blood supply. And, of course, you know, there are spin-out companies in California now trying to figure out what it is. But stem cells are really important well, this, is, this is obviously a treated trend. Extension transition. of the same thing, yeah. We know that uh, at age 65, uh, women have a dependent period or an expectation of a dependent period about four and a half to five years, whereas men, the same dependent period is only three years. Can you offer any practical uh, responses to that difference, what 
women might do to reduce that longer period of dependency. It becomes very important, of course, because not only do men, women live longer than men, yeah. but it means that men die earlier with a short period of dependency and the women are left dependent. Yeah, and women... Are, in, in a married couple where the age difference is about two years, it's quite a significant yeah. impact. No, yes. It really is. It's, it's a very sad situation and women are also much more um, vulnerable to dementia than men are, especially as they get older. Apart from the things that I've said, I don't think there's any further advice to give at the moment. I mean, ageing does throw stuff at us that we don't know how to deal with at the moment. I think that's why it's so important to understand what's going on and try to do something about it. I wonder if you could uh, comment on the strategies of increasing NAD plus with uh, uh, ribonucleotides that stimulate that as a strategy for uh, reducing aging-related diseases that uh, Durante and Sinclair have been proposing? I think it's, it's very interesting, and at the moment it's at the... Um, it's at the sort of spin-out, um, looking promising kind of stage, I would say. The preclinical solid findings, I think, aren't quite there yet. And certainly the human evidence is lacking. And those precursors have actually been available for a long time, um, and they aren't expensive. So I think the jury's out on that one. For those of us who've already reached our biblical allotment of <laughs> three score and ten years, um, I mean, is there any hope? Uh, you know, what message... <laughs> what, what hopeful message can we take back to our friends in the retirement village? <laughs> what, what, what is... Maybe what would be the top three things for us to do to at least stave off all these dreadful things that have been up on the diet, board? I would say diet, exercise and social life. So diet as in more protein, less protein? As in eat, eat a healthy mix of ingredients, you know, eat a balanced diet, don't eat too much of it, have the old glass of wine, try and do as much exercise as you can, but of course don't bash your joints too hard and, and try and have a healthy social life so that you enjoy yourself. As we, as we waddle to the <laughs> pool. <laughs> um, over here, Professor, to your, to your right. Um, yeah, uh, firstly, I'm very interested that uh, this gentleman talking about that Cox gene, that uh, experiment. I'd, I'd love to follow the experiment where they chop the arms of newborn babies before the age of eight weeks <laughs> to see if they grow back. That. But... Uh, uh, anyhow, uh, I just wanted to ask you uh, on your uh, uh, comments on uh, uh, eating intermittently and eating in a concentrated form. It seemed, oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. it seemed to uh, me, uh, indicate that eating in a concentrated form, time restricted, was obviously more beneficial. Now, just wondering if you could elaborate uh, what you think the reason behind that is there some uh, oxidation process that's uh, you know, more beneficial in a concentrated form? Or because um, you think it'd be counterintuitive if there were, for example, toxins uh, within uh, your, the, the food you're eating, it'd probably be easier for your body over a longer period to get rid of smaller quantities rather than a, a concentrated dose, you know, for example. So just wondering if you could elaborate what the, uh, the current theories might be on why this actually works. Well, I think it's not clear at the moment whether what matters is eating that concentrated burst of food 
or whether it's actually having the long fasting period in between. It's not clear. And it's also not clear whether the time at which they chose to do that feeding, which was at the onset of the active period in mice, which is actually at night, they're nocturnal animals, whether that matters. If that had been shifted to the mouse sleep period, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Is it something to do with there being a diurnal cycle of activity of different genes? And where you introduce food to the system really matters because of the change in activity of genes in different tissues. Um, so it's very clear that there are such changes. So for instance, the response to immunization seems to be at its peak at about five or six in the evening, which is the court not the time that most of us are vaccinated. But it's clear from the mouse work that that's when the immune system is most receptive to being interfered with. And it may be that the time-restricted feeding is somehow clicking into the circadian cycle in, in a similar way, so that the benefits of food are, are, are confined to a particular time of day. I think we just haven't done the experiments. And of course, these were very short-term experiments looking at weight gain and metabolic profile. We don't know what the long-term effects of that feeding regime are yet. So I think these are all open questions. Uh, it's uh, many years now since I studied psychology, but in those days we were taught that laboratory animals could have their life extended by one of two ways. Firstly, by feeding them less, which I think you've pretty much covered. Secondly, was by giving them affection. Have studies been done on that? It, uh, it seems to me quite a possibility. I, th I think this is another case of um, I don't know. Uh, certainly with mice, I'd be extremely surprised if they want human affection. I mean, you, you can go and talk to the same mice every day for the whole of its life, and it won't get to like you. It's, <laughs> Rats are completely different. They become very friendly very quickly. So I wouldn't be surprised if, with rats if, if some sort of social interaction would actually <coughs> improve. Yeah, I don't know much about them, <laughs> whether they like people or not. Interaction was good for men against women. Don't women live longer without husbands or something? Anyway, that wasn't my question. Um, look, I've heard people like Walter Longo, Longo, who I think you quoted, saying that IGF-1 is the evil. And as an endocrine, which, you know, causing more cancer, more cardiovascular disease, more metabolic disease. And as an endocrinologist, I can do things to manipulate people's IGF-1 levels, such as, you know, am I going to give them their estrogen replacement treatment as a tablet or as a transdermal? Um, do you think that... From your work, do you think IGF-1 is that we should try to be getting it as low as possible or that, that there's a low, not too low, but low normal or that it's all rubbish? Well, I think one thing, I mean, as, as of course you know as an endocrinologist, is that circulating, just raw circulating levels of IGF-1 are not necessarily that informative because it's handled by binding proteins and it's very much regulated in its access to, to tissues by those binding proteins and it can act in a paracrine, autocrine, or at a distance fashion. So just the raw measure of what's in the blood, not necessarily a very good indication of its activity. So that, that's one point that I make. The other is that you know we have IGF-1 for a darn good reason. And one of the things that dietarily restricted animals are bad at is wound healing. So if there's any question of trauma, then you need your IGF-1. 
And um, for instance, in the brain, it's very important in, in response to brain injury. So I think there's a yin and a yang with it. You certainly don't want no IGF-1. You're going to be in big trouble, and you need to be able to turn it on when you need it. So again, I think it, it's more nuanced than, you know, up is bad and down is good. And I think we need to understand a lot more about how it's regulated in specific contexts. Okay, one more question. Just with the drug um, meliformin and um, insulin resistance, um, I heard that they've done recent studies and found that um, that group of people that have been taking the drug for a period of time, that's where you got the study and data that it's starting to increase their life. Is that true, you know? Um, there hasn't been a controlled trial that's looked at effects of metform metformin on lifespan. Oh, that right. has not been done yet. That's really what the TAME trial is looking at. Yeah. What you may be thinking of, I'm not sure, yeah. is some rather dodgy epidemiological evidence which has just been published. So what was shown was that people on metformin in this particular study population outlived the rest of the population if you did case control matching. And that sounds like metformin's wonderful for lifespan. But if you start to think about it, the rest of the population um, includes people who never go to the doctor and don't look after themselves at all. So you have to get to a certain baseline to be on the drug. And it therefore probably also includes a lot of untreated type 2 diabetics. So I don't think you can conclude much from those data. Well, I think on that note, we should um, all come together and thank Linda for a fabulous talk. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.